the Voice America Variety Channel. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today is the second in the five-part series, The Gift of Exoneration, in partnership with the Northern California Innocence Project. The gift of freedom is second only to the gift of life itself. And today's guest is Gloria Killian, who spent over 17 years in prison paying for a crime that was committed by somebody else. Gloria Killian was convicted in 1986 of first-degree felony murder, robbery, and conspiracy. She's always maintained her innocence. She received a sentence of 32 years to life for the murder of a Rosemont, California couple. Rosemont is close to Sacramento, California. Astonishing, at the time, she was a third-year law student. She had no criminal history. And fortunately, in 2002, Gloria walked out of prison a free woman. The California Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned a conviction and determined the conviction was based solely on perjured testimony. Just six years later, that prosecuting deputy district attorney was then found guilty guilty of an ethical conduct in her case by the State Bar of California. So Gloria remains dedicated to assisting women in prison. She's made it her life mission. Not only is Gloria here to talk about her case, but she'll talk about her nonprofit organization she founded called Action Women Action Committee for Women in Prison. Thank you for being with us this morning, Gloria. It's my pleasure, Francie. Thank you for having me on the show. It's delightful. And joining Gloria is Amy Kennedy. Amy is the case manager at Santa Clara University's Northern California Innocence Project, a recent graduate from Santa Clara Law School, and she's been with NCIP for over five years. Prior to NCIP, Amy worked as the case manager at the Innocence Project New Orleans. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you for being with us. And so... Uh, Gloria, this is just, uh, your case is amazing, and I'm just going to let you start out by starting with the day you were arrested. What happened that day? Okay, actually I have to start a little bit before the day I was arrested. Okay, okay. Um, because the case involved coin shop dealers and their customers, and the victim, Mr. Davies, was a heavy investor in coins, um, gold and silver bars, things like that, which he kept in his house. Um, this was a very insular community, and they seemed to have a lot of issues with each other. There was a lot of buying, selling, uh, and then they would set their customers up and rob them and things like that. Um, I didn't know anything about this, but I did work for a coin shop owner. Not in the coin shop, however. He and his partner were splitting up their business, and it was a very acrimonious split. And so there was a lot of... Um, skip tracing people to find, you know, uh, bills to try to collect, things like that, and that's what I did. I think I'd actually been in the coin shop once in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the victims were, um, the robbery and the murder was committed. Um, Mr. Davies died. Mrs. Davies survived, however, and the police immediately focused on coins and coin shop dealers. 
And so the man that I worked for, a man named Gregor Fletcher, was one of the people that was questioned. At the time, um, he was, uh, you know, he was having a hard time doing this interview. He was making a lot of mistakes. Interestingly enough, the police did not continue to focus on him. But at one point, he suggested that maybe I had something to do with it. And so the next day, they came and asked me if I'd come downtown and talk to them. I said, sure. I didn't have anything to hide. I went downtown. They interrogated me for three and a half hours. It was frightening because it was so accusatory. But I talked to them. I didn't say anything incriminating because I didn't know anything incriminating. At the end of the three and a half hours, they stood up and said, you're under arrest for murder. And as they were taking me mm-hmm. out of the sheriff's station over to the um, the jail for booking mm-hmm. was when I realized that something else was really going on here because I was literally arrested live at 5, on 5, and every other channel. Every news media in Northern California was there. And oh. I thought, you know, something else was going on entirely. But naturally, I, mean, I was terrified. And what, do you, and what um, else was going on? What, what was going on? What was going on behind the scenes that you that you found out later? Oh, well, there was. It's almost. I mean, it's it's almost difficult to explain because it was so complicated at the time. But Virgil Fletcher turned out to be, um, as we now suspect, a police informant. He had owned a cop bar and various other things. He really liked hanging out with cops. Um, I found. Found out later he carried a gun. He actually had proceeds from the robbery in his home and in his motorhome. Didn't know any of that at the time. Was uh, he ever was also? And Gloria, was he ahead. ever charged with anything? No, no, he was not. And the interesting thing about that is that if I had committed that crime, I couldn't have done it without his help because I didn't have the information. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the victims. I didn't work in the shop. I had no idea what they had bought and sold. And interestingly enough, the victim also hated Virgil Fletcher. In fact, during the crime, at one point, the victim said, Virgil Fletcher set me up. Uh, The police always knew that, and they never did anything about it. Another thing that happened was there was an anonymous phone call made by a female to um, what was called a tip line, and she said, said that a law student named Gloria had something to do with his crime. Turned out later that that was Virgil Fletcher's girlfriend um, who had made that anonymous call. Mm. Mm. The police, they arrested me and they charged me with the death penalty. And so I hired the best lawyer in Northern California and after four and a half months, the case against me was dismissed. There wasn't any evidence against me. Okay. And supposedly I was released and everything was fine. Only it wasn't so fine. In the meantime, they had arrested both of the perpetrators. And the first one went to trial. Um, I was about a few months later. And his name was Gary Massey. Okay. He never said anything during his trial. Um, He was in custody at the same time that I was. And, you know, he never said anything to me. I never said anything to him. I don't think I'd ever even seen him before. And, Gloria, during that four and a half months, you were actually in Sacramento County Jail. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Anytime you're facing the death penalty, you, there's no bail for you. Right. Okay. And, in fact, they did several things to try to break me, quote, unquote, while I was in the county jail. 
Um, okay, like what? We got. I can't leave that hanging. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> um, most of it happened at the start because after a while, you know, the sheriff got to know me, and they just they not only quit messing with me, they um, actually put me to work for them as a trustee. But they put me in what's known as a solid door. It's kind of like an iron tomb, and they put people in there that are seriously mentally ill or something like that. You know, they kept the lights on 24 hours a day. They kept the speakers on 24 hours a day. Um, People would come to my door and try to get me to talk to them. But I remember most distinctly one of the cops saying to me, you're going someplace you've never seen before in your life. And a nice little girl like you is not going to make it. You're going to crack into pieces. Oh, great. And I thought, no, I'm not. That was the best thing he could have said to me. And brought out my defiant streak, if nothing else. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, so um, I was released after four and a half months. But when Gary Massey was convicted, he and he also said nothing in his trial whatsoever. Um, so Gary Massey was convicted, and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. On the day that he was sentenced, he went back to the jail, picked up the phone, called the district attorney's office and said, I can help you. And that was the beginning of the end for me. They took him back to court and they recalled his sentence, which you can do in California um, if you do it within the first 120 days. Mm-hmm. So he remained unsentenced for three and a half years while oh, he wow. fought against both me and his co-defendant. He put his own cousin on death row, claiming his cousin was the shooter, which I doubt very much. Yep. Lori, did you know this man at all? No. I knew some I knew someone who knew him. Okay. But as far as knowing him personally, no, I did not. Okay. Never had any contact um, with him. No. But he, had, but, but he had your information because it came into his case. Yes. Okay. I mean, literally, we were um co defendants. Um we went to all our hearings together, we went to our uh preliminary hearing, everything like that. So, of course, you know, we by that time, we knew all about each other. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, he picked up the phone, called the district attorney's office, and said, I can help you. After he was in sentence, um, he spent a great deal of time with the DA's investigator working out a story. And to ensure his complicity, they took him to dinner. They let him have sex with his wife. They let him see his children. They put him in special housing. They got him special jobs. They did everything that they could to make him think that he was their friend, and he went for it. Um, he also was concerned that his wife would be implicated in the case, and, of course, they promised him that that was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, And that is exactly how they did that. Um, and so eventually they came around and arrested me again. The scary part is that despite the fact that the DA's office and everyone else knew that this was contrived, they still charge me with the death penalty. Amazing. Yeah. And how long after that you were released were you rearrested? It was approximately a year. And did you feel that anything was hanging over your head at all during that, that year? Yes. I don't know why, but I had a very uncomfortable feeling. I just... You know, I ignored the whole thing. I didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the news. I didn't pay any attention to the case. I just tried to block it all out, yeah. um, which wasn't a very wise decision. 
but um, although I don't know what I could what I could have done to protect myself, right? But I, yeah, I just had that really creepy feeling that you get sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you were rearrested, and then did you yes. get the same attorney again? No, I wished I had, but I'd run out of money. Okay. Criminal defense is extreme, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know, is extremely expensive. Yeah. And you not only pay for your lawyer, you pay for every piece of paper, you pay for everything. So I asked the court to appoint an attorney for me. And Ray Thielen uh, was in partnership with his father, who was a pretty well-known criminal defense lawyer himself. He was excellent. Now, you, you just mentioned a name. Who is Who is that? I beg your pardon? You just mentioned a name. Who is that? Ray. His name was Ray, Ray Feeland. Okay. And, and it was Ray Feeland Sr. and Jr. And I, Ray Feeland Jr. was appointed to represent me. But okay. he was nowhere near the caliber of his father. And he'd never had a big case like this before. And in his defense, I have to say, there was so much going on behind the scenes. But again, um, if I'd had my first attorney, I would have never been convicted. And who was your first attorney? Uh, his name is Ken Jaffe. Okay, Ken Jaffe, and it, Ken Jaffe's from Sacramento. Yes, except he, it had a personal tragedy. In the meantime, his wife was murdered, so he had moved to Oregon. I but see. he was willing to come back and to defend me if I could come up with the money, and I could not do that. Right. I'd already spent it in that. That's one of the unfortunate sides of our criminal justice system, and it happens to a lot of people. They just they don't have the money. Right. And if you do have the money, well, you've seen the big trials and you see what goes on. Gloria, this is a real good time to take a break. We need to take a quick commercial break. Gloria and Amy will be right back. Thanks. Okay. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Gloria Killian and attorney Amy Kennedy from the Northern California Innocence Project are discussing Gloria's wrongful conviction. And when we were on the break, Gloria, you were just telling me that um, from the time you were first arrested to the time you were released, it was actually 26 years. Even though you were in prison 17, to actually 26 years from beginning to end, um, more than half your life. Um, no, because I'm really, really old. Oh, you're really, really <laughs> it's, at third, it's at least a third of my life. Okay. And the reason I had made that comment is it is literally a third of my life, and sometimes it's still very hard to deal with. Uh, you know, I go to therapy. I, you know, I work with other exonerees. We talk about it a lot um, because it's really difficult to heal from some of this. And I was lucky in in the weird sense that my wrongful conviction arose from a crime involving people that I knew nothing about. And so many female exonerees have been accused of killing their children or children they were caring for or an intimate partner. And so they have a double burden. They have, you know, to try to grieve this, to try to fight this at the same time. And it literally destroys your life. Well, and you have spent, uh, you and you've committed your life to this. It looks like spent many years since you got out in two thousand two. You founded this uh, women's group to support uh, women in prison. It sounds like a fabulous project. And yeah. tell us a little bit about what you do there. Well, the Action Committee for Women in Prison is a nonprofit that advocates for major changes in the prison system. The re- there, <laughs> the reduction of the over-reliance on incarceration. And I know that's a mouthful. But the point is that we try to lock up everybody who annoys us these days, which yeah. is why we have these bulging prison systems that are literally destroying state budgets. But that's not, it doesn't make us any safer. And this urge to incarcerate actually increases the number of wrongful convictions because we seem to think that everybody should go to prison forever, and it doesn't solve the problem. Most people that go to prison, particularly women, um, about 80% of them are there for nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, Mm -hmm. Women have a tendency to self-medicate rather than to lash out. Um, Most of the women inside have been abused, seriously abused. There's a lot of women that are there for killing their abusers. They shouldn't be serving life sentences for that. And we, the state of California, which is the leader in this mess, and the rest of the United States have clearly proven this doesn't work. So we need to stop doing it. I and mean, what, would, and very, what do you suggest, Gloria? What do you suggest? We need, to, we need to take a serious look at incarceration. I mean, there are people that need to be locked up. I certainly don't want the night stalker living next door to me either. But the vast majority of people in prison do not need to be there. Um, You need to start releasing a lot more lifers, for one thing, particularly female lifers. Our recidivism rate is less than 1%. People that are arrested for drug crimes, simple drug crimes, need to be put into treatment. 
Mm-hmm. It's very simple. Um, it costs less. I could put you in the finest drug program for a year for less than a cost to incarcerate you for one year in the prison where you get no help whatsoever. Yeah. Let's do something that actually is effective. And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, it only works on a third of all the people that go to treatment. Well, that's a huge improvement over what we've got now. Yeah, but we sure. need to get the idea that not everybody needs to go to prison for life. And we really need to take a look at the juvenile system and see what we're doing to these kids. Because the way that we treat them and the way that we incarcerate them guarantees that they're going to be going to prison for the rest of their lives. And there's much better ways to handle that. You know, people need support. People need well, training, education, classes, treatment. I, I always think it's interesting that the... Uh California Department of Corrections is called the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, which I can sh- I'm sure you can tell us that there is no rehabilitation in prison. No. <laughs> Sorry. And in fact, when they changed the name, I was cracking up. You know, I mean, as someone once said, this is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And we're not getting anywhere with this. And as the budget crisis has grown, they cut out more and more programs. You know, well, you can't cut out security, obviously, um, but you could certainly cut back on some of that because the prison guards union has made some wonderful contracts from their point of view, not from anybody else's. Right, yeah. Um, when you go, like, when you go out to the hospital, if you're a lifer, um, you have two prison guards with you at all times. Now, if you are wrapped in shackles and chains, which you are, you're female, you're small, and you're very sick. You don't need all these big, burly people taking you everywhere. It costs a fortune. Now, you were housed, and I say housed with emphasis because uh, that seems to be what we're doing with people incarcerated. We ha- we're actually housing them um, at uh, California Women's it's a California institution for women in Corona. Yeah, institution for women, yeah. And and that's where? It's in Corona, California. It's um, in San Bernardino County. Okay. So that would be south of L.A., just for our listeners, yes. in case they don't know. Yeah. yeah. And um, and tell us about that prison. What, what's it like? California, um, CIW was the original women's prison, and it was built... I'm sorry, it was not the original women's prison. The original one was at Zahatsuki. But it was built by the... The drive to build this was spearheaded by um, club women in Pasadena, of all things. And what they had in mind at that time was rehabilitation. So the physical plant is really very nice. It's long, low brick cottages. And other than that, it's like a dungeon. It's overcrowded. I mean, they have two people in rooms that were designed for one. They have people sleeping in day rooms. They have them stuffed in everywhere. And as I said, it's become more and more restricted and institutionalized as they have less money. They build their plans and their contracts around men's prisons. And that just doesn't work with women. It really hasn't. We spent um, five years on a statewide commission fighting with people about colored T-shirts. I mean, come on, give me a break. Couldn't we, about you know, colored talk t-shirts? About... What, yeah. what was that about? Colored t-shirts. Because 
it, psychologically, it's, it really helps women to be able to wear pretty clothes. I mean, a t-shirt isn't what I'd call pretty, but <laughs> colors and things like that make a big difference. Right. When they took right. away hair dye in the prison, mm. which they've now, interestingly enough, restored, I never, it never had occurred to me because I'd never dyed my hair at that time. Um, everybody was so depressed. It was awful because sure. they'd always, they colored their hair all their lives. Sure. I mean, these are small things that have a huge impact on female psychology. And I learned much of this from watching, just, you know, like everybody else did. But you would think that the Department of Corrections would know it. Well, the whole system is designed to denigrate the individual anyway. So, I can, yeah, I can see. Of course it is. Of course it is. Their perspective, um, yeah. But their rigid institutionalization to try to make everybody... Um, look like a clone. I mean, they were always dressing us in men's clothes. Why? Mm-hmm. You can get clothes for women. Yeah. You know, it's just, they try to turn you into this little ottoman. And then, of course, if you ever had any self-esteem when you came to prison, you wouldn't have it for long. I mean, the way you're spoken to, the things that are said about you, it's, it's awful. It's truly awful. That's amazing. And, and you also have... Um, this, uh, let's see, Convicts Christmas Potluck party at your home? <laughs> yes, I do. Have it every Tell year. us a little bit about that, because that's fun. I, that's a neat thing to do. Yeah, the Convict Christmas Party, um, the idea actually rose for, for two things. There were a couple of people that had gotten out, so I invited them to our house for dinner. But in prison, we used to always, and we sell females, we celebrate everything in prison or out. I mean, a friend of mine always uses the line, if you see a group of men on the yard, you know that trouble's coming. If you see a group of women on the yard, it's a birthday party. <laughs> That's <No>. very cute. <laughs> you know, if a woman gets an extra sheet, if a guy gets an extra sheet, he's either working on hanging himself or using it to throttle somebody or to escape. If a woman gets an extra sheet, she's making curtains. <laughs> we just do things very differently. So we yeah. all, we, our big thing was nachos. Um, you take the bottom of a noodle box and then you line that with whatever you can find and then you make your nachos in it so that you can share with everyone. Mm-hmm. So the first time I made nachos, except I made real nachos with sour cream and avocados and all that. And somehow the idea just got, everybody heard about it and the idea got around and I thought, well, Okay, let's just have a convict Christmas party then. <laughs> and I That's do it every great. year, and this year I'm actually scared because I think there's going to be like 100 people here. There were about 70 last year. And it's interesting because some of the staff come. You know, the staff that have retired, they come. Um, really? People that work on the Christmas project that I do for the women inside, they come. Mm-hmm. I got a call from a man who lives in... Um, I don't know, down the road somewhere towards Ventura. But they do the Christmas gifts for um, the fire camp down there. And he called me and said um, that they wanted to come to the party. And I, they they'd told me this once before, and I said, okay. So this year they called and said, uh, this guy did this, and this woman did that, and this person met you at your book signing, and they all want to come to the convict Christmas party, too. That is great. Say, no. That's fabulous. Yeah. Um, because people, you, 
women in prison who are serving life sentences, convicts, are amazing people. You are forced to change your everything about you if you ever are to have even a prayer of getting out there. I mean, you really have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And they are wonderful people. Most people don't have the time to do the kind of work on themselves that we do. And many of them, you know, they were always decent people. They just got into a horrible situation. And frankly, if someone had their hands around your throat, you might do the same darn thing. You might, for sure. You absolutely might. I'm sure I would. (laughs) Well, you know, we're going to take a break here in a second. But let me just uh, say, Gloria, that um, our listeners need to know about your book which is uh, looks like it's an award winner in the True Crime category in the 2012 USA Best Book Awards. Congratulations with that. Thank and you. And it's called Full Circle. Uh, it's you. It's by you, Gloria Killian, and Sandra Cobran. Mm-hmm. A True Story of Murder, Lies, and Vindication. <laughs> um, I'm sure people are going to want to uh grab up this book because it looks like it's it's just fabulous great thank you and, and are you going to amazon barnes and noble or any bookstore exactly it's on amazon uh which is where i found it and uh and it's featured in the uh, uh by the usa book news so really congratulations that's uh, a great story and uh it's good that you're telling it because you know you. you're real positive about that so we really need to take a, a quick break And Gloria and Amy will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112. To find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We are back. And I want to give Amy Kennedy, who is with us here today from the Unisys Project, an opportunity just to talk about the Unisys Project and how uh, how the Unisys Project works, and how people uh, how people can contact them, and all of that kind of thing. Amy, uh, would you take it from there? Sure, of course. So we are the Northern California Innocence Project, of course. There are innocence projects all over the country. We all review claims of factual innocence, and we're each um, loosely connected through what's called the Innocence Network, but we're each individual um, nonprofits and law clinics, so they've kind of broken up the country to review these cases. So our office is limited to reviewing cases in Northern California, um, and it, people can write to our office um, and get more information about the cases we take and more information about our office generally through our website, which is law.scu.edu slash ncip, and all the information about writing to our office, our screening questionnaire is all available online. You want to repeat that uh, website address, Amy? Sure. Sure. It's law, L-A-W, dot S. CU, as in Santa Clara University, dot edu, slash ncip. Okay. And so what, when somebody, so say I'm in prison and I get your address and I write to you, what happens? So those letters um, all come to me. I'm the case manager. Um, and as with any nonprofit, everyone in our office wears a number of hats. So I wear quite a few hats here, but um, my primary uh, hat, if you will, is uh, screening cases. So we receive approximately 800 to 1,000 requests for assistance a year. We read every single one of the letters that come into our office, um, and I'm usually the first eyes that see, that reads those letters. Um, and that sort of begins our screening process. Uh, for those who listened to our legal director, Linda Starr, last week, she described it as sort of a triage system um, where we're just kind of whittling down our pile of these 800 to 1,000 requests down to um, cases that we work on and take. And we've had um, 13 uh, wins, uh, both ex- exonerations and um, successful resolutions with our clients. Congratulations. So... Uh, so if I sent you a letter, would I would I expect a response from you whether or not you were going to get involved in the case? Absolutely. We send, um, if it's a case that we can proceed with, we send out a screening questionnaire to just get some more basic information about the case. If it's not a case that we can work on, we'll send them out, um, we'll send the inmate a letter explaining that either it's they're already represented by someone, so that's a case where we can't assist, or um, it just doesn't quite fall within our mandate. So I wouldn't be sending it into a black hole someplace and never hear, hearing from anybody. No, again. absolutely not. I mean, we do, of course. We're we're a very small staff, um, and since I'm the one reviewing almost all of these letters, um, of course, with help from our the rest of our legal team. But it it can take a while for us to get back to people when they write to us. But we usually don't take more than at least a couple months to respond to someone when they send us a letter. And are there key things that you look for in a letter that you that will 
give you a heads up. I mean, if somebody's drafting a letter, are there certain things you want to know specifically right away? You know, it's actually um, pretty. It's pretty basic. There's it's surprisingly, people always say, you know, that everyone in prison is claiming that they're innocent. But really, right off the bat, about half the letters that we receive, people aren't making an innocence claim. They're either um, complaining about um, issues inside their prison, medical issues, or issues with their sentencing, which may be very valid um, legal claims and issues. But unfortunately, we just don't have the resources to look into those um, those problems. And if we're able to refer them to a different organization that does, we'll always do that. Um, so, But a lot of times the first screen that I do is just looking for those, um, for a request that really isn't an innocence claim. Um, otherwise, if someone in their initial letter to us says, I didn't do it, um, we send them a letter. Um, that's, uh, the only exception to that is if the person's currently represented by counsel, we... Uh, that's wonderful. We have so many, so, so many people in prison who aren't represented that we focus our attention on them um, to see where we can assist. And we do actually send a letter seeing the attorney if someone's represented, letting them know that we are here. If there's anything we can do um, and we have the resources to do it, we're happy to help. Um, so that's kind of that process. And and you have investigators that um, are all over the state actually, that work on your cases on a volunteer basis, pro bono, correct? Yes, yeah. We are incredibly fortunate. We we could not do this work without investigators. Um, Gloria, I think in a little bit, will talk about the phenomenal investigator that she had in her case. And I really, um, investigators can make these cases happen. Um, and so since California is such a big state, and also because of our limited resources, what we've done is we get... Um, pro bono investigators who work all over Northern California to assist us so that we can save the resources and not drive up to Shasta County, rather um, a local investigator will help us out with that. And it's it's just uh, wonderful. We're so, so fortunate that we have people who so generously offer their time to us. And I suppose you also would appreciate any experts that be willing to donate their time to contact you as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, if if anyone is um, interested in offering any pro bono um, anything, feel free to um, send me an email. Our, um, okay. My email address is just aekennedy at scu.edu, and it's also all my contact information is on our website. Okay, great. And so uh, NCIP is uh, funded by voluntary contributions for the most part, correct? For our investigation services, since we're part of a law school, we also have um, a number of law school students who work on our cases. Um, And then uh, we do have additional um, volunteers on top of that. Right now, uh, we even have a couple um, attorneys who are full-time volunteering with our office, which is wonderful. Okay. But overall, uh, your funding, you're dependent on uh, people contributing to your cause. Yes, absolutely. So we, we do receive a small amount of funding from our law school, but the bulk of, um, the bulk of our funds come from our own personal fundraising. We, um, have a major fundraising event, um, every year called our Justice for All Awards Dinner, and that's where we receive the bulk of our funding for our office, but we also, of course, um, accept, uh, contributions of any size. Anything is incredibly helpful. Um, at any point during the year. Okay, so if somebody has a lot of money they'd like to give you, you're not going to turn that down either. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Gloria's case because she, even though Gloria 
uh, Gloria's case didn't come, her exoneration didn't come about through the Innocence Project. She's been working with the Innocence Project to further the cause. And, uh, Gloria, I just want to give it back to you because you had a benefactor who was amazing and an angel in your life. Yeah. I became friends with a woman named Joyce Rye. Um, she's actually Sally Rye's mother, the astronaut who just died recently. Um, yes. Who was the first female astronaut. And Joyce comes from an era where women stayed home, raised their children, and did good works, quote-unquote. Uh, she was a friend of Sybil Brand, who um, was a philanthropist in Southern California, who wanted women to have a nice place to be if they were locked up, so she built the Sybil Brand Jail. Then she spent the rest of her life trying to get her name off the thing, because it was so horrible. <laughs> but these women... Um, they were really focused on other women, and they wanted to help, and they became interested in women um, who were incarcerated. And there was a nun who had talked to their church group, and as Joyce always says, I thought she was talking to me. Um, it's amazing. So they formed an organization called Friends Outside, Joyce, which is to help um, prisoners. Right. But Joyce was going to a conference, and she wanted some stuff on incarcerated women. And I had just published a couple of articles in the USC Law Review. Um, but I also had written several articles about other women, particularly battered women. And so a woman that Joyce was very close to came to the prison to serve three years for killing her abuser. And so she told Joyce about the stuff I'd written. I sent it to Joyce. We started the correspondence, and eventually she came to visit me. And after about a year, she finally said to me, just, why, why the hell are you in here anyhow? Mm-hmm. And so I told her, and she mulled it over for a while and then said, do you mind if I hire an investigator? And I said, don't bother, because someone else had given me an investigator as a thank you for legal work that I'd done for them. I was uh, put to work in the law library in the prison, the mm-hmm. job I held for 15 years. Oddly enough, because they usually hate law clerks. But okay. um, she ignored me, and she hired this investigator. Um, and Daryl was fantastic. He also looked just like Hulk Hogan, so I was happy in <laughs> <Okay>. all counts. <laughs> okay, what's his name, Daryl what? Daryl Carlson. Daryl Carlson? Where is he located? I'm sorry, what? Where is he located? Um, he's retired. He's not practicing anymore. But was but, he in Southern California? or? Yes, he was in Southern California. Okay. And uh-huh. Joyce wrote him a check and told him to spend wisely, and off he went. He came back within a week, and what he had in his hands was a copy of a letter signed by the district attorney agreeing that Gary Massey would be resentenced to 25 years to life. This letter was so important because the DA swore up and down in court that Gary Massey had no reason to lie, that he had no deal, He was getting nothing from his testimony. Daryl had the proof in his hands. Coincidentally, about that time, I got a letter from the attorneys for Stephen DeSantis, my other co-defendant who was on death row, courtesy of Gary Massey. And they said, we have to talk to you. We must come and see you. I was a little leery. They got pushy, and I pushed back. But Uh Daryl contacted them and arranged the whole thing. And they showed up, they spent the day, they were absolutely wonderful. The attorney's name was Scott Williams. Uh, he now practices in northern, in northern California and Oakland. But 
they brought with them some of the most amazing things I never even knew existed. Ninety days after I was sent to the penitentiary, Gary Massey wrote a letter to the DA in which he recanted. And he said, I lied my ass off on the stand for you. I gave you Killian. What are you doing for me? He wrote hmm. three of those letters. At my evidentiary hearing, the district attorney said, well, I didn't know who to send them to, so I just didn't send them to anybody. In other words, he suppressed it. Right. You know, for all those years. I should have been on my way out within a year. Plus, there was all this other evidence that had been suppressed. Um, it had been altered. It was just, it was amazing. Um, um, something else that's, uh, that I don't believe we've mentioned already, too, that's really interesting about Gloria's case is so her co-defendants, Mr. Massey and Mr. DeSantis, were both tried and convicted before Gloria. And at uh, DeSantis' trial, he very he testified and very clearly said, I don't know who Gloria is. <laughs> she had no involvement in this case. And yet that information never came up in Gloria's case. She didn't know um, that DeSantis had testified that way. Um, her trial attorney never brought it up at her trial. Um, I'm sure he didn't know about it. He hadn't looked into it, which is just another phenomenal piece of why, I mean, it, Gloria just should not have ever been convicted of this offense. And yeah. Gloria, what year was this that they came to you? Um, God, let me think. I believe it was, um, I was released in 2002, so it was, it started, really started in 1995. Okay, well, and you weren't released until 2002. No, well, they fought my case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the truth. Okay. (laughs) And they were, so. All right. So Joyce Ride, this wonderful benefactor, financed the investigation. Yes, and... I had been instrumental in creating the USC Law Project, which is the first law project in a women's prison in the state of California. Uh And so um, Joyce went to lunch with the attorneys, and they gave her a list of five lawyers that they thought, you know, would be the best to take the case. And Bill Janago's name was at the top of the list. Bill Bill Janago also. Yes, he's one of the founders of the Law Center, and he's one of the finest criminal defense lawyers in the country. If I'm not mistaken, Bill has exonerated more people than any other than any individual lawyer or anyone except an innocence project. Mm. Because he's actually not in that business, although it sure seems like it someday. <laughs> and yeah. so Joyce hired Bill, and, and Bill she hired paid Lauren. for him out of her own pocket. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. Uh, she she paid him a hundred thousand dollars total. And then when she ran out of money, Bill just paid for everything himself. It was amazing. I mean, he never abandoned me, anything at all. In fact, there was a problem in the district court. The judge basically accused him of saying that I was guilty. So Bill was actually going to hire another lawyer to represent me. He was an amazing man. Um, and a fantastic lawyer, obviously. But it took all of that time to fight my way out. And... The key, the key evidence were these two letters. There were two letters, correct? There were three. Three letters, okay. Right. The key, so, so that plus, was the key evidence. The the recant the three letters of recantation plus right. the letter uh, the agreement for uh, the deal that was made, 
And then there was a lot of other evidence as well. There were various people that actually had been involved in the case and knew what had happened. One of them actually tried to talk to the district attorney because he wanted to make a deal for himself. His wife was dying of cancer, mm-hmm. and all he wanted was to have his cases uh, you know, postponed or his incarceration postponed until his wife died. He wanted to be with her. The district attorney was, had, had an investigator interview him and refused to even talk to him. And by the way, I really must mention my district attorney's name. His <laughs> name is Christopher Cleland. Um, Cleland. Was Can a, you, let's spell that. C-L-E-L-A-N-D. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, it's definitely it, in the book. Also, is he still practicing are, law? Is he, is he still a prosecutor? Is he in private practice? No. What's happening to him? No, he had retired. And it's odd because when my conviction was reversed, he was still working there. And then he very suddenly and abruptly retired. And, you know, I didn't think much of it, maybe health issues or whatever. But when I saw him at his trial, clearly he wasn't having health issues or anything like that. And we've sometimes speculated as to whether he might have been forced out. Because so you attended his trial? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And what, this Thursday is when he was prosecuted by the California State Bar. Yes. Okay. And, and yes. found guilty, by the way. Oh, yes. Yes, he was. Joyce and I and a lot of people from NCIP, all the lawyers, everybody went to court with me the first day. It was great fun. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> revenge is a little sweet, isn't it? Yes, it is. It really is. But it was interesting because the most, the best part of it for me or the sweetest part of it for me was the day that I... I wanted to go to the Embarcadero. I love that place. And it suddenly dawned on me, you know what? I can get up and walk out of here. I can mm-hmm. leave because he's the defendant. I'm not. I'm free. And I did. That is wonderful. What yeah. a wonderful feeling. You know, I don't think um, people really realize what freedom means until they don't have it. No. No, you don't. You and do just not. the idea that you can, with Complete freedom, walk in or out of a building, uh, is gold. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, I have to say that the Ninth Circuit Judge Michael Hawkins, who was a former crop prosecutor, he completely, Mm -hmm. it says thoroughly in news article that I read, thoroughly discredited the perjurer, which was Massey in the yes. decision the uh, Ninth Circuit made. Completely yeah. exonerating you. Yes, and I, th- I thought it was very interesting that the opinion, opinion was written by a former prosecutor. Yes. Um, because if anyone should have, you know, had more of a, a prosecution approach to it, it would have been him. But, well, you know, um, I'm sh- I'm sure for an ethical prosecutor, and you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate prosecutors. There are a lot of good prosecutors. I'm yes, sure for are. an ethical prosecutor, this is this is a nightmare because yes. it affects everybody. Yes, it makes us then, look at prosecutors like they're all trying to pull something, and that's not the tr- truth. No, and there's some wonderful prosecutors. I mean, uh, the DA in Dallas, Texas, actually instituted an innocence unit to examine, you know, all of the claims. Um, 
they did, uh, Senator Burton created a Blue Ribbon Commission in California to look at the causes of wrongful conviction. You know, there were a lot of prosecutors involved in that. Um, no yeah. one is saying you know. And Amy, uh, let me ask you, Amy, uh, isn't there something going on in Santa Clara County where uh, the Innocence Project is working on cases of convictions that yes. are that yes. are referred to you? Yeah, the Santa Clara County um, DA's office has also recently instituted um, their own um, conviction integrity unit, and the Santa Clara County DA um, has formed a great relationship, and one of the, um, his district attorneys as well has formed great relationships with our Executive Director Cookie Rodolfi, they're very supportive of our work and even came to our campus and spoke on a panel um, regarding prosecutorial misconduct in October. They've been great at coming and really having a discussion about the issue of prosecutorial misconduct. And that's the way it should be, you know, yeah. because it changes the whole scenario of winning or losing, which seems to be what happens in our court system, that, you know, it's not about truth and justice, it's about winning and losing. It changes it back to truth and justice. Absolutely. Very much so. In fact, NTIP was kind enough to host um, an event and a book signing for me, and there were a couple of prosecutors there. And, you know, they came up and introduced themselves and identified themselves, and they they bought books. (laughs) Really? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yes, and are because, you still I mean, in, you're still in contact with Joyce Wright? Yes. Um, she's right down the hall, as a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> she's, we share a house. She's my housemate. You, she's really? 80, oh, that's... Yes, she's now 89 oh. years old and looks better than all of us, by the way. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's wonderful. That's a, that's a, just a very heartwarming story about her. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate her and, uh, it's amazing. You know that yeah. that she was there for you. I, if I can add yeah. a, a note on that as well, it's. I mean, I just cannot say enough good things about Joyce Ride. Um, and it, when people are exonerated, their convictions are reversed. They leave. They leave prison with nothing. When Gloria was released from prison, she did not. She did not get anything. Um, so it's it's so important to have people like Joyce Ride who will you know come pick them up from the prison, take them home and yeah. um, house them while people can either get back on their feet or, of course, Gloria and Joyce being such great friends, just, um, you know, staying together like that. It's, it's really, it's, it's wonderful and so important. When our clients are exonerated, we've had um, a few instances where exonerees have come home with um, both our legal director and our executive director in one case and with some of our supervising attorneys in another because they have nowhere else to go. Um, that's a good point, and and it's not easy when you get out, is it, Gloria? It's a rough road. No, it's not. Um, and, you're, and, and you're saying you very, still have effects, still have things. Of course, and it was very easy for me. I mean, not only did Joyce take me home with her, but I got a lot of media attention. Um, you know, people did everything for me. Uh, I was released with a $250,000 bail of all god-awful things and put on formal <laughs> probation. Um People at All Saints Episcopal Church raised the money because my wonderful lawyer found a wonderful bondsman who said he would write the bond for 15000 cash and don't worry about the rest. And they raised that money. Otherwise, I would have had to go back to prison. Um, people are really wonderful. Um, you know, they're shocked when these things happen. Unfortunately, they shouldn't be because they're happening all the time. 
And that's why NCIP and the other innocence projects are needed so desperately. And you've gone back to law school. No, but I'm going to go You're back going to, to law school back. in the fall. The University of Laverne in law school in Laverne, California, has offered me a full scholarship. And so I'm going to go back and take care of that. That is wonderful. And I, you know, and I, if I don't get an opportunity to say so, I hope to see you in some of these venues, uh, you know, the death penalty conference in Monterey or, uh, some of these other venues where, um, you're a speaker. Because people need to hear what you have to say. Yeah, they do. And that's one of the, I wrote the book for two reasons. One, because I think people need to know what happened to me or to any other exoneree, and they because I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Sure, it's awful. I mean, it's your life is destroyed, and even though you might, you know, you get out if you're lucky enough to be exonerated, and many people aren't because there's no evidence and there's nothing anyone can do. But and you can rebuild a wonderful life, but still. I would never want anyone else to go through what I went through. No, none of us would. And no. we are at the end of our show, Gloria and, and Amy. Thank you so much. Um, let me just quickly mention, if you're interested in advertising on the show, contact my wonderful producer, Sandra Rogers, at sandra.rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. Next week... Another exoneree, Maurice Caldwell, convicted in 1991 of murder in San Francisco. And joining him will be Paige Kaneb from NCIP. Uh, Maurice served 21 years in prison. So, to, again, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Thank you, Gloria, for sharing the story about your good investigator. Uh, it's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Gloria and Amy. Thank you. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.